We have one political party that at least does still appear to have some kind of commitment to constitutional fundamentals, things of that nature. And we have another political party that, in my judgment, is literally disintegrating in front of our eyes right now. And there's nothing good about that. I don't know how it ends. And at least I, I fear to think about, you know, how it might end. That's what scares the hell out of me. Welcome to Freedom, a show about ideas that matter. I'm Aaron Ross Powell. And I'm Trevor Burris. The January 6th insurrection was the most conspicuous recent example of homegrown extremist violence on American soil. But our country has a sad history of this stuff. To discuss the emergence and evolution of America's contemporary wave of politically motivated violence, we're joined by Patrick Eddington, former CIA analyst and now Cato Institute senior fellow. The first instance of large-scale extremist violence that I remember from so from my own childhood, I remember it being big in the news, was the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995. And that's where your analysis of the, the current strain of right-wing violence begins. So let's start there. Can you tell us about that bombing, in particular, the, the motivations that led the bombers to it? Yeah, to the to the extent that we can, you know, trust anything that Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols, you know, the two perpetrators uh, of that attack on April nineteenth, nineteen ninety five, which killed over one hundred and sixty people, including nearly um, twenty children. To the extent that we can trust anything that they necessarily said about their motivations, it's really clear that McVeigh. And I should say, and just remind folks, that McVeigh and Nichols were both former uh, U.S. Army soldiers. Um, and I want to make clear, so am I. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a former Army officer as well. Um, and I, I give that little bit of a preface there because you know, there's, some, there's some research out there, some folks that are basically promoting research. Um, and I'm thinking specifically over at the University of Maryland. You know, essentially claiming that one of the key factors uh, for what happened on January 6th and one of the key factors in a lot of right-wing violence is prior military service. I'm, I'm really not sure that one can necessarily draw that conclusion, but I do think it's fair to say that in many cases, individuals with that kind of background have definitely been, to put it bluntly, overrepresented. Um, and in the case of, of McVeigh and Nichols, like so many people, um, of essentially a right-wing or, if you want to call it, anti-government kind of mentality in that period, they were absolutely influenced by this book called The Charter Diaries, uh, written under the pseudonym of Andrew McDonald, but the actual author is a guy by the name of William Pierce III, uh, an absolutely radical, uh, anti-Semite, racist, um, you know, use whatever adjective you want. This guy formed the so-called National Alliance, you know, which is which was essentially looking to create a whites-only state, and and they were all motivated essentially by this Turner's diary, the, the Turner Diaries, which essentially was a is a novel about um, an overweening government that allegedly is engaged in a whole series of acts uh, that uh, are are viewed by the protagonist as being complete assaults on their constitutional rights, et cetera, et cetera. And so essentially these folks begin to organize in cells, seeking essentially to bring down uh, the quote, the system, end quote, is how they refer to it. And, you know, when when McVeigh and Nichols engaged in, in the acts that they did, there were two critical events that had happened earlier in the 1990s. The first was uh, the FBI's assault on Randy Weaver and, and his family uh, in Idaho. And I use that word advisedly because, you know, Randy Weaver was, he's not a guy I would have hung out and had beers with. I think he kind of, you know, fit the mold of, uh, of being a, a white supremacist, but they were basically going after him on what I, I believe to be a completely trumped up gun charge. Uh, and they, this turns into like a major siege. His wife is assassinated by an FBI agent. Uh, Weaver ultimately surrenders. And this this is one of the initial rallying cries, essentially, for this, you know, militia slash right wing anti government movement. And then the next event, of course, happens in 1993, with with the siege and ultimately the destruction of the compound, the Branch Davidian compound in Waco, Texas. So these two events, really, uh, for guys like Nichols and McVeigh, really seem to bear out um, in real time 
the message of the Turner Diaries. And, and so I think they begin to see it as almost a form of prophecy. And so they, they conspire, of course, to put together this giant truck bomb. Uh, we would call it a vehicle-borne improvised explosive device or V-bed, you know, in our current terms. But that's what it was. It was a trunk bomb using fertilizer and related materials. And, you know, McVeigh, you know, obviously believed that committing this act was, number one, an act of revenge for what was done to Weaver and what was done to the Branch Davidians. But I think like many who were influenced by this Turner Diary so-called leaderless resistance model was hoping that it would lead to similar acts and even kind of a general uprising. Now, none of that happened, of course. You know, the country reacted, I think, overall in exactly the opposite way. But that leaderless resistance model, you know, was still essentially kind of the thing uh, in large measure, you know, up until we get into the, I'd say the mid 2000s, when you begin to see groups like the Oath Keepers and others uh, emerge. Um, and these are much more kind of traditional militia models, if you will, heavily populated in the case of the Oath Keepers, almost exclusively populated with prior and even in some cases, current military personnel, as well as current and or former law enforcement or folks involved in um, uh, disaster response, uh, first responder type activities uh, and so on. So that I think is, is kind of the arc um, you know, that we were looking at uh, until this guy named Donald Trump came along. And what makes everything that's happened and what I found radicalizing about the entire experience was watching a, a sitting president seeking re-election, basically tell a group of, of right-wing white supremacists, in this case, the Proud Boys, during a presidential debate to, quote, stand back and stand by. Nothing like that had happened. And, and in preparation for our chat today, I, I went back and I, I reviewed uh, at least portions of some of the, uh, some of the biographies written on uh, the late George Wallace, the former governor of Alabama, uh, and of course, the uh, one of the presidential candidates in 1968, Wallace, of course, a hardcore segregationist, uh, right in the middle of, of all of that, uh, you know, anti-desegregation activity uh, in the South uh, at that particular time. And I, I was just trying to refresh myself, you know, did, did Wallace even come close to doing anything like this? And the answer is no. Wallace accepted the outcome of the election. He didn't change his views for the most part, and he wound up running successfully for governor again. Uh, after uh, after that 1968 election, but you know even Wallace did not engage in the kind of conduct that Trump did, and that to me, as I said, was radicalizing. And and it, obviously, since he's since he's not in a jail cell right now, um, and leading by 40 to 50 points in the polls over his closest rivals uh, for the GOP nomination for 2024, it has me just you know scared to death is there something different about right-wing extremist violence because if we were having this conversation i think in 1980 we'd be talking about left-wing extremist violence such as the weather underground black panthers uh and a stunning amount uh, people don't often remember this you know the amount of bombings that happened in the 70s was quite stunning and i think a huge amount of it came from what we would call left-wing groups, uh, and and you know you know and I, I agree with you that this we have this time now where we have to talk about political violence again, and I think maybe we, for me and Aaron, uh, because of our age being a little younger than you, we grew up in a very politically non-violent time, but there there has been a lot at different times and it's not just been the right wing. Um, so is, is there a difference in the kind of way it, it manifests between the right wing and the left wing? You know, it, it's interesting that, that you bring that up because the first major domestic terrorist attack on American soil, um, and I'm talking about a mass casualty situation here, was not perpetrated by what, what we would all consider to be a right wing or militia type group. It was perpetrated by a union against the Los Angeles Times in 1910, right? And I, I think a lot of folks probably forget the fact that in the in the early, really in the first, you know, probably 15 years, almost first 20 years of the 20th century, uh, there was an awful lot of you know left wing related violence, you know, a lot of uh, especially like labor related violence, um, 
usually over working conditions and things of that nature. But clearly, you know, in that particular period, you had an awful lot of that kind of thing. And then when we get into, you know, what historians generally refer to as like the new left era, uh, which comes along in the 1960s, this is when we get the rise of Students for a Democratic Society, the splinter element of which uh, is the Weather Underground or the Weatherman. Um, and that splinter group in the late 1960s and early 1970s does indeed engage in a lot of, of these kinds of bombings. And interestingly, you know, the FBI, they were just at sea. I mean, they they were trying to, they turned over every rock they could think of and they, they were never really successful uh, in doing much about the Weather Underground. They finally managed to capture some folks because some of them were given up. Um, but yeah, there, there's been, there's clearly been essentially, you know, an evolution that's been going on here. And, and I do think, you know, right wing, um, activity, white supremacist and, and racist related activity has been a feature of American life literally since colonial times. Right. I mean, when, when we actually finally got a constitution in 1789, uh, the black folks were really not included in the deal except to be counted for census purposes um, to try to help out folks south of the Mason-Dixon line in terms of proportional representation and all the rest of that. And in the wake of the Civil War, you know, we get the rise of this thing called the Ku Klux Klan, which is the first genuinely organized domestic terrorist organization in the United States. And the U.S. government's response to that uh, during the Grant administration was to passed the, uh, the the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871 to then turn loose literally the army as well as the Secret Service. Uh, and Charles Lane's book from a couple of years ago, uh, Freedom's Detective, is a magnificent chronicle uh, of that entire era and everything that was going on. The Secret Service actually engaged in bona fide torture. Um, it, it would match pretty much anything that was done at, at uh, Abu Ghraib or some of the CIA black sites uh, in the Bush 43 administration. And that that had the effect of breaking the Klan, um, at least from a military standpoint or paramilitary standpoint, for a very, very long time. Um, but those Southern racist Democrats um, ultimately still got their way, right? Reconstruction was ended. It was part of the deal to, to take care of that little electoral problem with, with Tilden and Hayes. And... And you wind up basically having a, a tremendous amount of regression in the South and the Klan does rise again to the point. And you, you can find these photographs uh, if you just go to the Library of Congress website and search for them. There are photographs of hundreds, if not thousands, of robed Klansmen's, Klansmen marching down Pennsylvania Avenue uh, between 1920 and 1924. They also took over entire state governments like Oregon and actually my home state of Colorado, where Aaron is. Uh, my dad had a, a very old law partner at his first firm who had spent time in federal prison for illicitly recording uh, gov the governor of Colorado talking to the Klan with a recording device in the governor's office. And I think he was pardoned by FDR, uh, but this guy was it. And then he went to law school and became a lawyer. But yeah, they took over. It was it was a really big deal, and people need to know that. And and in our time right now, you know, we have certainly seen in the, in the post January sixth era, we have seen efforts by the Proud Boys, especially, who unlike the Oath Keepers, the Oath Keepers have essentially, I think, been largely eradicated effectively now as, as a functional, you know, militia. Um, the Proud Boys have not. I mean, they have decentralized their operation and they've, they've spent a lot of time not just, you know, going and, and trying to disrupt um, dra drag queen story time events. That's obviously a big hobby horse for them. But they've also been trying to infiltrate school boards. They've also been trying to infiltrate state and local governments. And I think it's critical that folks be alive, you know, to the peril of that because if you go back and, and you look at the early civil rights stuff, and I've, I've just spent the better part of seven weeks out of the National Archives at College Park going through an awful lot of material from, from the Kennedy era. Um, and, and what you see in there um, are the records about the efforts of the so-called white citizens councils. Um, I, I would call them essentially like early versions of the Proud Boys, uh, colluding with, with local uh, voter registrars to purge 
uh, the names of, of black residents from voter rolls. Uh, and these were some of the early civil rights cases, um, you know, that the FBI was directed by then Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy uh, to go and investigate. So I, I've, I've had all that in the back of my mind, essentially, is I've been thinking about these other things. When we start talking about the Proud Boys, you know, I, I think it'd be really good to start taking a look at whether or not they're trying to, you know, infiltrate, you know, election operations, essentially, I mean, the machinery of it and access to voter rolls. Uh, I think if, if somebody's not looking at that, somebody should be. There's no doubt about that. One thing that stands out about Trump, especially in the context of the, the leaderless resistance that you talk about and him kind of changing things, like providing that that leadership or figurehead role, is how ultimately unideological he is. So we look at the prior wave of violence that we lived through was Islamic fundamentalist violence and September 11th and Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden were deeply, deeply ideological. Their their motivations were an articulated theory of the world and morality and society, et cetera, et cetera, and the harms that America was doing and so on. Um, the the anarchist violence that we saw in the late 19th, early 20th century was ideological. The Klan was ideological. The SDS and the Weather Underground were ideological. And and the current right-wing violence like Timothy McVeigh, the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, they have an ideology, but the person who has given them leadership, the person who said to stand down and stand by, the person who is ultimately responsible for the sieging of the Capitol on January 6th, is himself just not. Like he'll sometimes talk in the language of, of ideologies, but it's all it's all just kind of narcissism, self-promotion, self-preservation. He it's it sometimes is unclear, like even if he really knew what the Proud Boys were when he said that or had any idea what they believed in. They were just, he kind of divides the world into people who say nice things about him and people who don't. Uh, and and so that just seems odd and and not quite analogous with kind of the history of the other sorts of violence we've seen. It, it is. And the, the phenomenon that you're describing with respect to Trump applies to his relationship with evangelicals, Right. This, this is a man who, in his personal behavior, models not the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ, but the Antichrist, right? I mean, this, this is really, this is, but, and, but the fact that evangelicals have rallied around him, you know, stems from the fact that I think a lot of them have, have essentially bifurcated this kind of stuff in their mind. It's like, well, we don't necessarily expect him to be perfect, but, you know, he, he gave us Dobbs. He, he gave us the justices we were looking for. We got the outcome, you know, therefore he's our guy. Uh, and, and Kristen Dumez is, or Dumay, is that how you pronounce her name? Dumay? Um, you know, the, the time that you had her on, you know, to talk about her incredible book, uh, Jesus and John Wayne, which I highly recommend to everybody. Uh, really, she plums that the depths of this essentially. But I think that's exactly what Trump does, you know, with every group. It, it's, these these people and these groups essentially are in his mind simply tools to accomplish the end of getting him back into power, either keeping him in power in the case of the Proud Boys, uh, or getting him back into power. And I should note that you know his his, his buddy Roger Stone was definitely very tight uh, with the senior Proud Boy leadership, in, including uh, convicted felon Enrique Tarrio, uh, among others, but. But what I've never been able to establish, and perhaps, you know, special counsel Jack Smith will do this, you know, in his in his prosecution of Trump, is actually be able to show a documentary chain, an evidence chain, directly linking Trump to the Proud Boys um, in terms of, you know, what they ultimately wound up doing. Because it was really more the Proud Boys, uh, which also that, that that element does include former law enforcement, former military, et cetera. They were the real, you know, tip of the spear that day in terms of breaking into the Capitol itself, you know, breaching the barricades and then finally breaching the building uh, it, itself. So whether Jack Smith has accumulated, you know, direct evidence um, that more closely links Trump, uh, you know, I don't know. What I have found, what I have found both disconcerting and kind of baffling is how 
the Department of Justice mounted successful seditious conspiracy cases against the foot soldiers here, right? The Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys. But Trump himself has not been so charged. And I'm, I, I continue to scratch my head over that because there was clearly, I, I call it kind of a pickup basketball version of a coup in that he was really kind of making it up. He and his immediate Confederates were really kind of making it up as they went. But whether or not in those final days, those final couple of weeks, you know, was there any kind of direct communication, you know, between Tario and or some of his Confederates and anybody at the White House? I don't know. The one most recent development that I do find really intriguing uh, is Cassidy Hutchison, who was uh, White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows' um, sidekick, ghost, um, etc. Her in her book, which is coming out, I guess, this week or fairly close to this week, she alleges that Meadows um, was engaged in a massive document destruction campaign. <laughs> at his home uh, in which his wife said in, in essence or confided to somebody in essence that his dry cleaning bills were enormous because they were having a hell of a time just getting the smoke smell out of what he was doing there. So that raises the question for me, you know, was he destroying evidence of a direct link? You know, what other evidence was he destroying that would implicate him, Trump, uh, and and maybe some of these right wing you know armed elements, or, or or maybe Matt Gates, congressman from Georgia, who uh, was seeking a pardon uh, prior to Mr. Trump's departure. I you know I don't know, but I that's the other part of this that I really worry about is we're not going to know the full story on this. I think ever, but what we do know is disturbing enough that we need to have Congress take actions, and I've I've outlined some of those in some of the pieces that I've written to make the federal bureaucracy essentially Trumpist proof for lack of a better term, to make it much more difficult for them, for him or anybody like him to reach down and essentially, you know, fire hundreds or thousands of uncooperative workers uh, who don't want to go along with his plans. Something along those lines has got to happen because the truth of the matter is we got lucky um, with the senior leadership at DOJ in those closing days, essentially being willing to close ranks and tell Trump, no, you know, if, if you, if you try to install Jeff Clark, this nobody essentially as the new AG, we're all going to walk. And as it turns out, that's the only thing that backed Trump down. What I fear is that he won't back down the next time if he actually gets back in office. Where does the uh, FBI factor into this? Because someone listening so far might be like, well, Pat, really wants to empower the FBI to do massive surveillance on, you know, these groups that are clearly very scary and, and are getting bigger and getting scarier. Um, and the FBI, it kind of depends on who you talk to and it depends on, you know, the, what, what party is supporting them or not. But some people think that they're a crack band of uh, amazing workers who, you know, will respect civil liberties and get to the bottom of this. And other people think that they are a massive civil liberties violating organization. And again, it kind of depends on, you know, what five-year span of which party is, is holding which side. But you have more complex opinions about the FBI because it would seem like, like you want the FBI to be involved in this from what you've said so far. So I, I think, you know, anybody that would take a look at my writings would have to characterize me as one of the harshest living critics of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. But, you know, there's a certain reality that, we, that we're confronting with here. And, and that is, and, and this is what makes the problem, you know, really hard. If you actually believe, as I do, that people should be presumed innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. And I apply that to Donald Trump in the same way that I apply that to the local dog catcher or, or, or whatever. Then at the same time, you really can't believe that any kind of generalized mass surveillance targeting people on the basis of group affiliation is okay because it's not. And of course, you know, the FBI um, has been legendary <laughs> for those kinds of, of violations um, going all the way back literally to their founding year in 1908. Um, and it's interesting because the first cadre of FBI agents 
uh, that, that became FBI agents were actually ex-Secret Service guys, um, some of whom might have had experience with that earlier campaign against the Klan, um, but an awful lot of them had experience essentially surveilling uh, and trying to dis essentially disrupt the operations of socialist uh, and anarchist, you know, in the first decade or so of the 20th century. And, and I think, you know, that mentality and of course, you know, J. Edgar Hoover's, you know, 50 year tenure, essentially as the head of the FBI, his attitudes, um, you know, on race, you know, Dr. Beverly Gage and her book, G-Man, uh, which is now, I think the authoritative biography on J. Edgar Hoover, which came out last year, she makes it clear uh, I think that Hoover was at his core essentially racist. Um, there's no way that that doesn't rub off on on the rest of the bureaucracy, right? I mean, you, you know, Hoover's going to pick people and did pick people who shared his mindset and his worldview, and the mindset and the worldview of of the society in which Hoover grew up and and operated in was a very racist. Uh, society and, and of course virulently, virulently anti-communist and so all of these things essentially you know kind of color it and I and others have argued that in many respects you know the, the FBI has not changed um, and one of the latest examples of course would, would be the Trump era uh, China, so-called China initiative which targeted without any kind of real cause in most cases Chinese American scientists te uh, technologists, engineers, mathematicians uh, who had any kind of you know connections back to the PRC, including family connections back to the PRC, and an awful lot of these folks wound up getting railroaded in, in prosecutions. Um, DOJ under Biden claims that they've scaled that program back or disestablished it. I don't really believe that. I, I think an awful lot of that is still going on, which just again I think speaks to you know the larger problem, which is an institutional problem. So if if you accept as a given that we want to have a society that is fundamentally based on law and order and simultaneously based on a respect for constitutional rights. It means you can't just arbitrarily go down the road of, you know, suggesting, you know, wider surveillance powers. And a number of, of folks in Congress, you know, Benny Thompson, uh, who was, who was uh, the chairman of the, of the House Select Committee on January 6th, you know, has essentially said that and sponsored legislation essentially to that effect. We have to be focused on conduct at the end of the day. That's what we have to be focused on. And if credible evidence emerges from credible sources that someone is planning to commit a violation of federal law, i.e. engage in seditious conspiracy, then of course the FBI should act on that. But they shouldn't have the authority to just open an, an investigation on somebody with the, with the lack of a criminal predicate, which is exactly what they can do today through this mechanism created at the end of the Bush 43 administration uh, by then A.G. Mukasey called an assessment. And, and I've written about this at length, but their, their ability to use that tool to keep tabs on individuals and groups is, is scary. And of course, at the Cato Institute, you know, we're in federal court uh, litigating you know, on that very issue, trying to shake loose as, as many of those closed assessments as we can to get a sense of how bad the problem is. But that that's the that's the dilemma that we face, Trevor. Uh, you know, walking this line, and and it's it's a difficult line to walk. But if we're going to have a functioning republic built on a constitutional foundation, that line has to be walked, and we have to make sure that our people in law enforcement, you know, are are doing that, that they're actually doing it. And I think there's, you know, good reason to be concerned that the FBI is not. And the FBI itself, you know, in, in some studies that have been released, they, they've admitted that there is a, a big problem with white supremacists uh, in law enforcement, right? They've even been advising, you know, their field offices to be careful about, you know, what kind of information they share with certain people in certain, you know, police departments uh, because they're afraid that it will get back to the potential targets uh, in these cases. So it's, it's a difficult and tricky line to walk, but but we have to, and and that's why you know we need to make the FBI better. We need we need to have essentially a cleansing uh, of of those who you know carry bigoted attitudes, ideas, all the rest of that. And I've I've you know written a piece that kind of gives some I think common sense ways of going about that. You know, you look at somebody's conduct, 
you know, who do they arrest? How often do they arrest them? You know, what, what's, what's, the, what's the demographic profile? What's the racial profile? What's the religious profile? There are ways that you can get at this um, using data to tell you who's a problem child. But it's also got to start with the FBI uh, school at Quantico, uh, their academy at Quantico. Through a FOIA request, you know, we determined that they're not in any way, shape, or form teaching their agents about the infamous COINTELPRO, the, the counterintelligence program that, you know, we've kind of, you know, walked around during most of this podcast so far. But that, of course, is the one that not only targeted the Communist Party of the United States, but targeted Martin Luther King, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, Students for a Democratic Society. The list literally goes on and on and on. That's not taught at Quantico. Um, even some of the more recent egregious violations, um, such as the targeting of Oregon Muslim American lawyer Brandon Mayfield as being, you know, one of the Madrid train bombing co conspirators, totally blown case by the FBI. The Spanish police were frantic trying to get the FBI to understand uh, that, you know, the fingerprint, their fingerprint analysis at the FBI's was BS. It was wrong. They were just wrong. And it wasn't until, you know, the FBI went public. And and claim that Mayfield, you know, was you know one of the one of the bombers, one of the participants, that the Spanish police then went public and said, no, it's not a match. And that's the only way that really the FBI ultimately backed down. But after you know, at that point, the damage had been done. Mayfield's name was in media globally, you know. And I spoke. We had his daughter at an event a few years ago uh, on a panel, you know, talking about this. And she made it clear that their lives have never really been the same. And that's not surprising. And that's why we have to be careful. We, our government officials and our law enforcement especially need to be required to be careful. Um, and right now, unfortunately, when they engage in these kinds of violations through this insane court-created doctrine of qualified immunity, they get to walk. Um, so if we're going to have accountability, it's got to start first with training. But then we need changes in law to ensure accountability for these kinds of violations. So everything you just said, all of the the solutions, the the reforms that are needed depend upon a public will to do so because ultimately they depend upon the electorate through its representatives holding organizations to account or forcing change upon organizations that would like to maintain their way of doing things and so on. And that requires navigating the contemporary political culture. And, and so as you were talking about all this, and, and I've been thinking about this a lot lately, the contemporary political culture seems perfectly constructed to not accomplish the things that you just set out. And, and what I mean by that is – so we as hardcore civil libertarians um, and people who recognize the the dangers of the ideological movements that have been emerging and gaining power um, and, and engaging in violence on the right in the last decade are in this odd kind of odd man out spot in the contemporary political scene in the sense that we on the one hand are like these are serious problems. There are real threats to democracy. There's – you know. We, we've seen violence. We're likely to see more violence. People need to take these ideologies seriously, et cetera. But on the other hand, we are aware of all of the history we've talked about of how the mechanisms that get used to – that could be used to fight back against these movements are often – I mean in some cases empowering similar sorts of movements or are targeting – marginalized oppressed groups and so on and so we are we're really aware of how dangerous a government can be particularly when it's acting in you know like acting in the sense of we have to stop immediate threats that's when like the real harms can happen but we're in this situation where the sides you know one of the weirdest parts of the early trump years was you suddenly had democrats embracing the FBI as like the embodiment of American values and upstandingness and and you still get a fair amount of that because they're the guys going after Trump, right? And so for someone like us if we say, "Hey guys, it turns out that these organizations are actually themselves 
quite dangerous, there's e- there's profound skepticism and not just skepticism, but often, oh, you're running cover for the bad guys or you're secretly supporting the bad guys. Or if you say the FBI is overreacting in this area or that thing that you just labeled as fascism might not actually be fascism, you get you get piled on because you're you're not taking it's almost like shrillness and inability to recognize nuance is a sign of how seriously you take the issue um and and that makes it very hard to have these kinds of conversations and then on the right you have a similar like the more that that happens the more it seems like there's this monolithic against usness which I don't I mean I absolutely do not want to excuse any of the far right stuff and the legitimately fascist and proto-fascist movements that exist and the racism and the homophobia and so on and so forth but we have all seen people who at one time didn't buy into those beliefs ought to know better start getting drawn into the conspiracy stuff it's people who you know there's people who I at one time respected who became very convinced that there were shenanigans going on with the election and maybe you shouldn't have stormed the capital but we probably should have done something because guys the election might have been stolen and and a lot of that is coming from this same place of basically we have to divide the world into our friends and our enemies and anyone who kind of doesn't necessarily ride the line between but says look there's the, the line between or the line of where people fall can be fuzzy or complicated or inconsistent just gets dropped into the enemy's camp that's just a sign you're not one of us and and i guess that's what i've been thinking about just as i said a lot lately is how do we given how extraordinarily dangerous the current situation is and and even if it's a low risk that these guys could take over board the mechanism of power if they do it's catastrophic we need to have meaningful ways to push back on this but we need to have meaningful ways to push back that aren't just over empowering the very organizations that are then going to oppress us in the future and and i don't have a good answer on that so i'm mostly just kind of throwing this out to the two of you of like how the hell do we manage this problem so the the thing that i've kind of come to believe is that the age that we live in and this technology that has been created over the course of the last you know 20 years or so um the instantaneous nature uh of communication the the ability essentially to put out something completely insane um that then goes global right i don't think there's any way to kind of escape that Right. I mean, it's going to happen. So you you simply have to accept that in some respects, you're always going to be playing catch up. The, the other thing that unfortunately I think we have to accept right now is that for people that are like hardcore partisans, they're just not going to be talked out of their position through rationality, through reason, especially when they're, you know, deciding that they're only going to get their information from, you know, one particular source, right? So I, uh, I'm i a big, big, big fan of Sarah Longwell uh, over at the Bulwark and what she does with her focus group podcast and, or, and, and, the, and all the focus group work that she does, essentially kind of looking at not just Trump voters, but independents and Democrats and all the rest of that. Anyway, you know, her first episode of the season dropped, you know, just in the last week or so. And she was looking at, you know, a lot of these hardcore Trump voters. And at, at the beginning of this cycle, at the beginning of 2023, 20, this is after essentially the Mar-a-Lago raid, but, you know, before a lot of other stuff had happened. And when DeSantis seemed to be, you know, the governor of Florida seemed to be like the new thing on the Republican side. In these focus groups, what Sarah was finding was that they were among Trump voters, people that were like 2016 to 2020 Trump voters. They were, in essence, at that point, split. Some of them were going to stay with Trump no matter what, but the other half were like, I appreciate what he's done, but we need to move on. And that's why they were looking at DeSantis. 
And then after the series of federal indictments and, and the Georgia election interference indictments come down, what she saw over the summer was a rally around Trump effect. And, and so that's why now a lot of the national polling is showing him being exactly where he was close to the beginning of the year, which is literally 40 to 50 points out in front of almost everybody. And DeSantis has not helped himself uh, at all uh, with a lot, of, a lot of what he's done on the campaign trail. So, and on the other side, even though a lot of Democrats are really wishing they could get somebody other than Joe Biden or Kamala Harris, um, they, they see Trump essentially as an existential threat. And so you get, you've got people that are in, in essentially in very, I think, hardened positions when it comes to national politics. So I, I think in a lot of respects, the beginning of the way out of this is what we're seeing at the local level and the state level around the country, where some elements of, let's say, police reform, for example, have actually been successful. They've, they've been taking off. So that, to me, at least, is where a lot of this has to begin. At the national level, I simply think that we're in for an unprecedented level of turbulence over the course of the next you know, 15 to 18 months. Um, and as far as, you know, doing what's possible to kind of insulate the institutions, you know, what Senator Tuberville has been doing with these, uh, with this, you know, endless hold on senior officer nominations, there, there are some people that are speculating that, you know, this is actually designed to help Trump. You know, whether that's, whether that's true or not, I don't know. But what I do know is that when, you know, these kinds of military nominations get politicized in this way, it, it's not good for the service. Um, and and a, a scary scenario that I keep, you know, rolling over in my head over and over again is if Trump were to win and was actually somehow able to actually conduct a campaign from a jail cell and, and try to govern from a jail cell, um, you know, would he basically say, okay, well, Mike Flynn is going to be my acting secretary of defense? And then Flynn goes in and just goes to town. I mean, I think in some respects, this is what happened when he made Chad Wolf uh, the, the lead guy over at DHS. So that that's why, you know, I've become just a fanatic about trying to reduce the number of political appointee positions essentially across the board in all federal agencies and departments, but especially in those that deal with, with law enforcement and national security issues in order to try to make them as resilient and resistant you know, to that kind of pressure as possible. Yeah, but that's that's the that's the interesting danger on a broader level uh, that if if we do have a kind of uncontrollable bureaucracy that can't be controlled by political appointees, that that might work now uh, with with the danger that Trump presents, which is I agree extreme, but it also is how an FBI could run away and do things we really, really hate. I mean, this is the, you know, the civil service debate in 1881, you know, with the Pendleton Act. Like, there are arguments for not reducing political appointees, but increasing political appointees. Uh, and that means that sometimes your political opponents will be able to make appointees, but that means you get to do that too. Yeah. I, I think ultimately, though, the problem with the argument, and, and this is one of the reasons why, even though I hate Teddy Roosevelt for having created the FBI. The one thing that I think he got very right was trying to find ways to professionalize the federal bureaucracy, you know, as much as possible based on his own experience, you know, in New York. And and when I look essentially at like a Nazi model or a traditional Soviet model, um, in the end, that's what I worry about more. Um, I don't think that every FBI agent or special agent in charge gets up every day thinking to himself, who can I spy on today? I don't think it quite works like that. I do think that, that the bureaucratic incentives that exist tend to push them in that direction, right? So if what you're getting rated on for promotion purposes is the number of assessments you've opened, the number of preliminary investigations you've opened, the number of full field investigations, enterprise investigations, the number of external intelligence notes that you've contributed to, all of those kinds of things 
to me, the key there is to completely change the bureaucratic incentive structure, you know, and, and not grade people on that, right? I, I prefer to grade people on how many times did you not open an investigation because you were convinced that doing so would have violated somebody's rights? I, that's my kind of metric, you know, as far as I'm concerned. And they'll, they'll still have more than enough work to do, right? But when, when I look at, at history especially in countries that were authoritarian or totalitarian, where the party structure was able to exert its influence all the way down essentially to the unit level, that is how they essentially ensured compliance, you know, with orders, you know, from up the chain, even if it meant, you know, putting people in gas chambers, right? And all the rest of that. So there, there is, I mean, we're dealing with human beings in institutions. There is no, there's never going to be a 100% solution sometimes unfortunately it's a choice between a, a not great option and a horrific option you know potentially and i think that's that's really where i'm kind of coming down at this point in time and that doesn't mean that you know we shouldn't have and i, I do think we need to have you know a, a long hard look you know, at exactly how many federal employees we really need uh, you know, what they're up to. I mean, I look at the Postal Service, which has absolutely engaged in an enormous amount of surveillance itself, right? The whole issue of mail covers and all the rest of that. Um, I've always believed that the, that the post office could be replaced. You know, there's nothing in the Constitution that says that a postal service, a federal postal service, has to be populated with with federal employees. But where am I going to get my magazines and my AARP uh, <laughs> offers for membership? I mean, you know. <laughs> or the junk ads that I wind up throwing out virtually every day uh, when the uh, when the postman comes by. So I'm I'm not here to say that you know we shouldn't be taking a look at whether or not we should be downscaling you know the number of rank and file and and we should be looking at you know the missions that we've and the laws that we've created, right? that we tell the FBI to go out or DEA or whatever to go out and enforce all of that, you know, needs a look. But you know, what Aaron is talking about here is this giant schism that we have in our society right now that is being played out in real time on Capitol Hill in the house of representatives where we have a group of fanatics and that's the only way to describe them who are literally holding the country and the entire federal government hostage in order to try to get compliance on uh, their demands. And and what Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker of the House, is learning is that when you give in to a terrorist demand, there will be more demands, right? And that, that's exactly what's happening here. So and until we get to a place where we have two genuinely functioning political parties that are interested in governing, and right now we only have one political party that seems to be interested in governing, I'm not saying that it governs well when it has power. I don't think it necessarily always really does. Most of the time it really doesn't. But we have one political party that at least does still appear to have some kind of commitment to, to basics, to, fun, to constitutional fundamentals, things of that nature. And we have another political party that, in my judgment, is literally disintegrating in front of our eyes right now. And there's nothing good about that, right? I mean, there, there'll be no balance there, you know, at all. Um, and unless... Unless collectively, you know, we find a way to kind of break through this. I I don't know. I don't know how it ends. And at least I, I fear to think about, you know, how it might end. I, I don't know whether, you know, the Matt Gates of the world and the Paul Gosars and, and the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the Lauren Boberts. I don't know whether they're going to be, you know, viewed as a historical anomaly 20 years from now. Or whether they're going to be seen as like, you know, the new wave. And if they become the new wave, I I don't know how, I don't know how you avoid a larger breakdown, you know, in society. I just I don't. That that's what scares the hell out of me, you know. And I that's why, for me at least, that that's why active participation in the political process, especially at this moment in history, for me at least, is extremely important. It, it's just absolutely critically important. And you know, I I wish I could clone Justin Amash. Right. I mean, if we had more guys like him, um, you know, we'd be in a better place. But the incentive structure and, and you all have had him, you know, on a, on a previous podcast, the incentive structure that he described with respect to the House, especially, is just, you know, it's spot on, you know, and, and unless and until that's changed, 
it's just like the you know the federal executive branch bureaucracy. If you don't change the incentive structure, you're going to continue to get bad outcomes, and that that does require you know people being willing to get engaged in the political process and try to do something about it. Just one final note on, on our friends at the FBI, though. And, and Aaron pointed out that um, Democrats have really been rallying around the Bureau. It's funny because they sure as hell didn't view James Comey that way. They thought he was the living embodiment of the Antichrist when, when, he, was, when he was, you know, trying to see to it that there was actually a credible investigation of what Hillary Clinton you know, had been doing, you know, with respect to her personal email account, which is supposed to be a giant no-no, right? So it's funny how the wheel can turn. And it's that partisan insanity that it makes me glad I'm not on the Hill anymore, <laughs> but it also, um, it, it, it speaks to just exactly how much things have changed just in my lifetime. I mean, trying to get somebody like, you know, Bob Michael, the former minority leader from Illinois, try to get somebody like him elected today, forget it. I mean, there's just Howard Baker, I mean, Howard Baker's, you know, conservative credentials, frankly, were pretty damn good. He wouldn't have, he wouldn't stand a chance today. So we we need to have a change, and especially on the right. And if if a if a center right party that was, you know, socially, uh, you know, moderate to liberal, and still, you know, relatively economically conservative, were were to, you know, appear, yeah, I'd sign up for that. I'd I'd sign up for that. Um, that's what, to me, it's going to take, uh, unless there's like some kind of actual revolution in the GOP, an anti-Trump revolution. But I don't see it happening, not anytime soon. Thank you for joining us on Freedom. This is a listener-supported show. If you'd like to get access to episode transcripts, bonus content, extended conversations, and our Discord community, go to www.freedom.audio. 